following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Boy, sometimes there's a song and you can just, like, go home. <laughs> um, that song might carry us, might have carried us through the next three weeks of talking about evangelism, crying for them, come back home. That'd be one good way to reimagine evangelism. Before we talk about that and what it means and, frankly, what it doesn't mean or doesn't need to mean, um, I'd like to do our fourth Sunday prayer time, which is prayers for the church in Rochester. We decided a few months ago that we're going to start doing this, uh, lifting our brothers and sisters in Christ to God and doing that by name and with as much specificity as we can. And I've been trying to stay in touch with the pastors of some of the churches that we've prayed for, so I can give you a couple of quick updates. Um, Our friends at Christ Community Church of Rochester, who uh, did a little pulpit exchange and worship exchange with us over the last year, uh, have moved into their new space. They moved into their new building on Easter Sunday, I think it was. Had a wonderful experience there. You can catch up with them on on Facebook and other places. As you might remember, they had been displaced from their uh, meeting space at Youth for Christ uh, because the boiler went in the building and they, you know, the Youth for Christ people can't afford to replace it. So uh, Christ Community Church of Rochester, or C3 as we have called them, are doing great. And our friends at Community of the Savior, who are also in a, uh, were in a building situation, put in an offer with, uh, or, or two, the congregation at uh, South Presbyterian Church to purchase their building. Uh, on Easter Sunday, the the board of South Pres voted to accept that offer. Yeah, so that's great news. Our friends at uh, Community of the Savior are going to move on up to the east side. Actually, they're going to move west from the from um, Fairport into the into the city, which is cool. And that's a very exciting and challenging time for them. So we want to be praying for them as they um, now have to raise the money to to make that purchase. So. Uh, there's one other one that we haven't prayed for before, but um, Bethany actually reminded me that we should be praying for our friends at Heart and Soul Free Methodist Church. I don't know if any of you are connected with this church, but their pastor, who was a, a seminary colleague of mine and Mike's, um, Joanne Green, uh, died very unexpectedly at a very young age, um, leaving behind a husband and, and children this past year. And uh, the other thing that has, obviously the family things are the, the more painful, but their church has been without a pastor, and, and I'm not sure actually where they are in that process. So I need to reach out to them to find out, but I would like us to be praying for them as well. Um, and uh, the other, another church we pray for is the South Wedge Mission. They are um, meeting at the old uh, Peace Lutheran Church building, a new church plant in the last year. And um, I'm sorry to say I haven't had much contact with them recently, but we want to continue to lift them in prayer. So would you pause for just a minute with me? You can be um, praying in your in your hearts and minds and in your spirits, and I'll just say a brief prayer for our our friends. Lord, we are so thankful for the the beauty of the body of Christ, that it is one body, but all kinds of different parts, and each part has its own role to play. Each part is uniquely gifted by you. That's true in our local church community, and it's true in the global church community. So thankful for our brothers and sisters at Southwich Mission and Heart and Soul and Community of the Savior, and Christ Community Church, and all the other churches in the city that we um, have had contact with and haven't had, our friends at Baber. 
for all of these congregations. We lift them to you, asking that you would continue to bless them and work in their midst, uh, that really the, the saints-to-be could be called home into each one of these communities according to their needs and according to the character and, and calling you've given them. We're thankful for that. We ask for your blessing on them uh, this month until we pray for them again. In Christ's name, amen. So um, I sent Mike to my office because I think I accidentally put my <laughs> speaking mic in there. And guess what? It's right here. <laughs> I have it, Mike. Don't go down there anymore. Sorry. <laughs> now, he, he's like ripping stuff off the walls. Where did he put it? Um, so give me just a moment while I <laughs> remember to put this on. So this should come on live here, and then I just have to just see there's a clip that goes on my collar. Wow. I think there are days when um, I'm feeling a little too sure of myself and uh, of my own coolness, and then I don't generally believe that, that God uh, intervenes in every little moment of our life, but sometimes I think he hides the microphone from me just so I have to look like a dummy for a few minutes. <laughs> okay, a couple of quick programming notes before we dive into this new series. Uh, number one, uh, one of our closest ministry partners, organization known as the Bridge Rochester, actually started right here, and as many of you are involved with this organization, uh, they're holding a fundraiser on May 2nd. Am I right? Is it May 2nd? And it's, a, um, it's like a, a dinner, correct? A reception. a reception. Yeah, thank you. There's the details. Thank you. Um, so that's May 2nd uh, at Smokestack Cowork, which is a really awesome place. It's, it's worth the price of admission just to go see the place. But we really, really want to be supporting the bridge. They, one of the things that they do is, uh, in their housing advocacy, is they, they help people who are unhoused find housing, and one of the big obstacles is that people who don't currently have housing can't just magically raise the money for a security deposit. And so the bridge collects money for many other reasons, but one of the things that they do is they collect money to help people with security deposits, and um, that's one of the things your fundraising dollars could go to. So I want to encourage you to be part of this. I actually have a gig that night and can't be at it, or I would be. Um, but May 2nd, if you have questions about that, you can talk to Keith today. Um, or uh, Shane and Jenny aren't here at the moment, but you could talk to them. If you happen to know Anna of Larry Eisman, you can talk to her as well. All right, so that's programming note number one. Programming note number two is that we have an annual meeting coming up. Our annual meeting is uh, May 7th. Thank you. Some of you have been paying attention more than me. Um, this is uh, much less boring than it sounds. We have a big potluck at 6 o'clock, and then we get together and talk about 
plans for the year, and we do also vote on a budget and to approve new members of the leadership team. Um, this year, uh, I'll just tell you now, we, the nominating committee has nominated Ellen Sofa and Elliot Voss to replace two members of the leadership team who are coming off the team, Scott Cranfill and Heidi Cressman, who have served each for six years with major, major distinction. Um, actually, clap for Scott and Heidi, because they have done such an awesome job. Seriously, you, you have no idea how much the culture of Artisan Church has been shaped by those two people. Um, you really don't have any idea, and I'm telling you, they're, they're awesome, and we will miss them big time. But Ellen and Elliot have both accepted the nomination. We're very excited about that. You get to vote, hopefully to approve them, um, at this meeting coming up on May 7th. So, uh, potluck and good times and all that. We are also going to renew membership. If you don't know that, our, our, our membership expires annually at Artisan on purpose for certain reasons that I don't have time to go into right now. But Jamie, uh, James Confido will be here after service. He'll be out there with new membership covenants, so you can be re-signing those if you're a member. Um, we'll also have them at the meeting, of course, as usual. So, Okay, enough programming notes. Let's get to the fun stuff. I want to ask you, what kind of person do you um, think about when you think of evangelism? Because we're starting this new series on evangelism. Um, I'll give you some options here. You have a picture in your head. Maybe it looks like this guy. Right? Um, well, it could have looked like the guy behind that guy, too. But many of you know who this is, right? Who's this? Billy Graham, right? It's, it's the nice Graham. His... <laughs> uh, okay, enough about that. Um, maybe you think of evangelism like these guys, right? Some of us have been visited by the guys with skinny ties and bicycles, right? <laughs> yeah, they're... Um, some of them have fixies that are the hipster, hipster Latter-day Saints. Um, <laughs> perhaps you think of evangelism and you think of this fella, right? Preaching to uh, people in a hut in Africa. And maybe, to bring it full circle, when you think of evangelism, and I think this is what a lot of us think of, you think of this guy, Right? If you're listening on the podcast, don't have the luxury of seeing that image. It's, it's a man with a megaphone and a gigantic sign that says, the end is nigh, right? As if it's not scary enough to, to tell people that the world is going to end, you have to use a fancy Old English word when you do it, right? <laughs> So I want you to leave those up there for me for a minute, please, Elliot, while we think about this. Um, if you grew up in the church as I did, uh, well, if you grew up in the evangelical church as I did, you... You, probably have some, you and I probably have some shared memories. We could, we could spend some time thinking about this and talking about this and reminiscing about um, the expectation that every Christian should be um, what we call witnessing, right? Here's a clue. When somebody turns a noun into a verb, that usually means that they're, uh, they're, they're telling you to do something that's not going to be fun, right? A witness is a noun. It's a thing that you are, okay? When you um, turn it into a verb, it kind of um, breaks the, the purpose <laughs> a little bit. So you, we were told you have to witness to your friends, which basically meant that you, Scott, or whoever, are really solely responsible for, for keeping your friends in the right place in eternity. You want them to be with God, not the alternative. Right? And uh, too often, I think, the, the pressure was so high on this 
that it really did feel like the eternal fate of my friend's souls, and if, if you're a Christian and, and your family isn't, then of your family's souls, is in your hands. It's bad enough that we were told, if you die tonight, where would you go? You also now are being told, oh, also, you have to remember your friends. If they died tonight, where would they go? And if they went the wrong direction, would it be because you didn't tell them, fill in the blank, they're a sinner, or Jesus will save them, or whatever it might be, all right? Um, what I want to argue over the next few weeks is that this understanding of evangelism is a distortion. What I will not argue, however, is that we should not be concerned with evangelism and we shouldn't be trying to do it. Okay? So as is often the case here, we're going to try to go down the middle of the road. Uh, and it's maybe a narrow road and precarious on either side. But I want to argue that, that that expectation and understanding of evangelism and of witness is a distortion. So I want us together to reimagine what evangelism can look like. And that's what the series is about. Proclaim. It's our calling, part of our calling, but perhaps in a different way. So we're going to spend the next few weeks thinking about this. And uh, if you've been with us for the past year or so, you know that with the exception of Advent and Lent, which we just finished up, we've been thinking very strongly about what it means to live our faith beyond our walls. That's been the thematic thread that has woven its way all through our ministry year from June last year until this coming month of May uh, when things will turn over and we'll have a different focus perhaps. Beyond our walls. This is right in the middle. It's kind of a bullseye for living our faith beyond our walls. And that's, uh, that's how we situate it in our life together this year. So today's title is, Can He Be the One? For reasons which I think will become clear fairly soon. But the topic of evangelism, really, I do, I do think it flows right out of last week's message. Right out of the idea and story of Easter. What was the very first response to the resurrection? We talked about it last week. Mary Magdalene had been weeping at the tomb, and Jesus appeared to her, resurrected, alive. She didn't recognize him at first. And when she did... What was her first reaction? She ran and told her friends. She had an experience with Jesus that altered her world. And I think she did a very natural thing, which is to say to her friends, my world has been altered in the following way. Jesus, who was dead three days ago, is alive today. I submit to you that she would be a little bit Weird not to go tell her friends that she saw this, just to return to her work and never mention it. She goes and tells them to come and see. Go and tell, come and see. Go and tell, come and see. You see this pattern all the time in these stories about evangelism. And on a basic level, just carrying a message to somebody is what evangelism is. The, the word evangelism comes from a Greek word that means a, like a message or a good message. Sometimes it says good news. The, the same word is at the root of uh, the noun messenger, which is uh, alternatively used for, uh, as angel or translated as angel. So an angel is an evangelist, a messenger. A messenger is an evangelist, an angel. The words are, are interchangeable. So my very sincere hope is that over the next few weeks, uh, these messages will help redeem a much maligned but really important part of being Jesus' people. 
With that in mind, can we pause for just a minute and will you pray with me that this would be accomplished? Um, Thank you. Lord, we uh, just want to be honest that this is something that many of us really struggle with. We have seen it abused. We have uh, felt the pain of expectations that we weren't able to meet. We weren't sure where that came from. And yet we hear the call of Jesus saying, go and make disciples. So we want to be obedient to him. Will you help us see a way to do that? That doesn't violate the law of love. That doesn't require us to try to live outside the giftings that you have given us. Help us, we pray, today and for these next few weeks. Amen. So I want to uh, begin this series with two stories from the Gospel of John that will illustrate um, what I think is a crucially important part uh, uh, or point about evangelism for us. These two stories that I want to look at today uh, are quite familiar to us. If you've been with us during the season of Lent, we actually encountered both of these stories from the lectionary passages in Lent this year. And so they will be familiar to some of you. They're familiar stories in the Bible anyway, so if you're a Bible nerd like me, you, you already will know them even if you weren't here. But I want to look at just a little tiny, a little tiny slice of each of these stories. All right, you'll see where I'm going in just a minute. But the first story is found in John chapter 4. If you'd like to look in your Bibles, you can do so. We're looking at John 4 starting in 28. The red Bibles under your chairs and in the seat box pockets, uh, you'll find this text on page 865. If you brought your own, I can't tell you what page it's on. So this is the story of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well, known as Jacob's Well, because Jacob, the ancestor, had, had uh, built this well. You remember this story? Jesus meets her at noon at the well. She's probably there at noon in the heat of the day because she's a Samaritan woman and uh, would be considered unclean for Jewish people to, to be in contact with, and they shared this well, the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, and Jesus finds her there. And she's, she's sort of surprised that he's even willing to talk to her, because not only is she a woman, but she's a Samaritan. And, and uh, if you'll pardon a, a coarse uh, expression, Jewish people at the time considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. So Jesus talks to her and, and uses the water as a metaphor and says, um, talks about living water. Do you remember this story? She doesn't quite understand what he's talking about. Eventually, he changes the subject, and he asks her to go get her husband, and she says, funny thing about that, Jesus, I don't actually have a husband. And he says, yes, I know. You've had five husbands. You're not even bothered to get married to the one that you're with now. And she's astonished that he knows this about her. How would he know? Eventually, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, come back. They had been off on an errand. They come back, and they're, they're astonished to see him speaking with a woman, which can we please just agree not to be astonished at the people Jesus wants to talk to? (laughs) They come back, and, and she leaves, and she goes and tells her friends about what has happened to her. And look at what she tells her friends. She says, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. This is the bit about the husband's and the boyfriend, and then she says this, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? 
Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? This is important. This is interesting because he had just told her explicitly that he was the Messiah. Look at at verse 25 in chapter 4. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, one who's speaking to you. And yet she goes and tells her friends, come and see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? It's very interesting to me. Let's look at the next story together. This is uh, John chapter 9. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. We recently, as I said, read this story as well. We'll start with verse 15. This is on page 872, and I'm, I may not read the whole text to you, but if you wanted to follow along, we're looking at the first few verses on that page, 15 through 17, and then 24 through 26 is where some of the other stuff comes from. This one is the story about the man who was born blind, and he was begging in the street. Do you remember this story? Remember what Jesus' disciples asked Jesus about the man begging in the street? They say, teacher, who was it that sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he should be born blind? Which is kind of a weird question if you think about it because if it was the man himself who sinned that he was born blind, I suppose he would have had to sin in the womb. Maybe he kicked his mom in the ribs too much. (laughs) Abel kicked Tracy in the ribs for like three solid months before he was born. And yet he was born perfectly well-sighted. He doesn't even need glasses. It's a weird question. But it's not so far off from some of the things that we say about people sometimes. So they ask him who had sinned. And he says, no one sinned. This is a chance for God to show his power to you. And so Jesus um, does this very odd thing. He makes some mud out of his spit and the dirt, and he puts it on the man's eyes and says, go wash it off in the pool of Siloam, and the man does it, and then he can see. And since this is one of those real obvious miracles, people start to question the man. And they question him for a while, and then they bring him to the religious teachers, the experts in the law. And they interrogate the man. How did he do it? Well, he made some spit mud. Where did he go? I don't know. I was blind. Well, how did he do it? I just told you he used spit mud. Who is he? I guess he's a prophet. I don't know. And this goes on and on and on because, oh man, because the religious leaders have their knickers in a twist about the idea that Jesus would have healed a man on the Sabbath day, which was strictly observed as a day of religious rest. And can we just agree not to get our knickers in a twist about how Jesus might want to heal someone in a way that doesn't conform to our understanding of religious laws? So the interrogation continues, and eventually they come to the point where they insist that the man admit that this Jesus healer person was clearly a sinner, and look at his response. 
Verse 25, he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. See, he's a wiseacre. I told you before, I love this guy. I don't know whether he's a sinner. I can tell you one thing, though. Yesterday I couldn't see, and now I can. As if to ask, what more do you need to know? So let's summarize these two so-called witnesses to Jesus. Because I don't think their Christology is very good. That's a fancy seminary word for our theology about who Jesus is. And if they were in seminary writing a paper on Christology, I think they would fail (laughs) their class. Well, at certain seminaries they'd pass, but um, (laughs) at the one that I went to, they would fail their Christology exam if this is what they said. Let's... Let's, let's boil it down. They each said one sentence about Jesus. One of them said, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? And the other one says, I do not know whether he, that's Jesus, the word made flesh with God and was God from the beginning, is a sinner. Most churches in, in America, if you, if you tell them you're not sure if Jesus was a sinner, they will, they will say you probably should go out for a while until you come back and get that straightened out. <laughs> These are two early evangelists saying what they know about Jesus, which is apparently not very much. And here's what I have to conclude from these stories, and this is the one sentence for today. You do not have to be an expert in Christianity to share the gospel. Let me say it again. You do not have to be an expert in Christianity to share the gospel. Let me tell you what I think you do need to be. And that is a person who has had an experience with Jesus. One of the reasons, I think, that evangelism is so hard for us is that we are trying to sell people on an experience with Jesus that we ourselves have actually never had. We are trying to maybe get them to heaven after they die. And yet here we are, alive, walking around on the stinky earth. Never mind the theological problems with the idea that we're looking to have Jesus whisk us away from all the bad things, um, despite what the biblical picture seems to be, which is that Jesus will restore everything and make it, make it perfect again. We're trying to save people from hell, which is a place that most of us have a hard time even believing some days is, is a real place, despite what we've been taught and what the Bible has to say about that. The reason we have trouble is because we are trying to sell people an experience with Jesus that we ourselves have not had. It would be like expecting the Samaritan woman to go and tell her friends, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. He is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him all things were made. Reciting the prologue to John's Gospel, or reciting Colossians chapter 1, 
He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn from the dead. Uh, all this high Christology. It would be expecting this woman who had just really been told that, that she was a serial monogamist um, <laughs> and, and some stuff about living water that she didn't get. It would be expecting that person to know the entire picture of Jesus. It would be expecting a blind man not only to have seen the person who healed him when he was still blind, but to know who he is and where he came from and why he was healing on the Sabbath day and all the rest of it. It would be expecting them to be experts in Christianity before anybody had ever been called a Christian, before expecting them to share the gospel. And it is just so jacked up and backwards to expect it to work that way. So the question that I think you need to answer for yourself before you can begin to think about being an evangelist is not, do I have all my, too many kids in the room, stuff together? It's not, do I believe every single letter and dotted I and cross T of the Apostles' Creed with all my heart. It's not any of those things. The question you need to ask yourself before you can become a good evangelist, a gospel sharer, is what has been my experience with Jesus? If you are thinking about that question and you don't have an answer that excites you, that's what would make you not ready to share the gospel, I think. Uh, and it doesn't mean you're a, a terrible person and you should go away. Please don't hear me saying that at all. As a matter of fact, if you haven't had a meaningful experience with Jesus, you are in the right place, in my perhaps not so humble opinion. Here or a place like it would be a great place to have that first experience with Jesus. But most of you in the room, I dare say, have had an experience with Jesus in some form or another. Maybe it was a miraculous healing. I do not rule that out. Maybe it was that you, you tried to be coy with him about what your life was like, and he's like, no, I know who you are. And he told you everything you ever did. Maybe all it is for you right now is that you are captivated by his teaching, and you've tried to apply a little bit of it to your life, and it has begun to make a difference. That's not exactly high Christology, but that's enough of an experience to start sharing it with other people. Right? I was going to save this for next week, but I have to say it now. You say that you don't do evangelism and you are so full of crap. It's not even funny. <laughs> do you know how many people I have told that this is the particular phone they should use? Do you know how many people I have told about my guy who buys cars and fixes them? Like, five of you in this room are buying a car that you, or driving a car that you bought from my car guy. Because I am sold out on the gospel of Peter. Right? <laughs> How many people do you have a favorite athletic shoe or handbag or store at a stupid mall? And you just can't shut up about it. You're so excited about Old Navy. You just have to tell your friends about the clearance sale. You are all evangelists for whatever excites you. I'm sorry if you're not excited about Jesus. That was such a mean trick. <laughs> we are not afraid to evangelize things that we actually like. 
I think our problem is that we, we, we put Christian evangelism up on this shelf. Like, I have to save Timmy's soul before he goes to sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. I see that, Tim. You know, <laughs> oh, man. The point is to be honest about what your experience with Jesus is and, frankly, be honest about what your experience with Jesus isn't. If he is indeed the God who made the universe, he can handle your honesty about that. He can take it. If you want to say, I'm not sure about the virgin birth or the resurrection, you can be honest about that and Jesus can handle it. I think that those things are true. But they're not, you don't have to get them all squared away before you start to share your meaningful experience with Jesus, whatever it is. It's the evangelism version of this moment, this, like, this, this inhibitor to salvation, where we say, I will let Jesus save me as soon as I get my act together a little bit better. As soon as I get my marriage in order, as soon as I um, stop cheating on my taxes, as soon as I, whatever it is, then I will be good enough for Jesus to save me. That's missing the point. It's the same kind of thing, saying I have to get everything perfect, my understanding about Jesus, my, my experience with him has to be exactly in line with what my parents or my church or my pastor or anything expects it to be before I can go out and share the gospel. You do not have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. You only have to have had a meaningful experience with Jesus. So I want to ask you, what is your meaningful experience with Jesus? What has it been? Is something coming to mind? Wouldn't it be neat if a friend of yours or a family member of yours could be invited into just that much of the story of God? Just the part that you can see with your half-blind eyes in the dark with a tiny little candle of truth. Wouldn't it be neat if your family and friends could, could look at that little piece of it with you. They're not going to unless you show it to them. You don't have to be responsible for their ever-living soul. You have to be responsible for your own story. Come and see a man who showed me, who told me everything I'd ever done. Maybe he's the Messiah like he said he was. I don't know if he's a sinner or was born of a virgin or raised on the third day or etc., all I know is that I was blind and now I can see. If you can tell that much of your story, you can proclaim the gospel. In a minute, I'm going to pray for us, myself included, because I am terrible at this. And I want you to be thinking about someone who would benefit from knowing your little piece of the story of God through Jesus. Can you fire up that worship meditation, Elliot? I love this thing from um, the author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He wrote The Little Prince, I think. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless Immensity of the sea. 
think of this person that you would like to teach to long for the endless immensity of the sea of Jesus as I pray. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to get everything exactly right to be welcomed into your kingdom and even to welcome others into it. Thank you. Now we picture our friends, our family members' faces before us. We thank you that we are relieved of the duty of personally saving their soul. We give them to you and their soul to you. Help us, though, to have the courage to invite them to see the little piece of the story of Jesus that we have experienced. And we pray that when we do, your Holy Spirit would be speaking even deeper truth into their hearts, would be hearing, that they would be hearing from you, O God. Help us to have the courage to proclaim the gospel as Jesus commanded us. Amen. I want you to keep thinking about that person as you come to the communion table. Receive the bread and the wine or the juice. Remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Remember the peace of life with God that you're able to experience through Jesus and think of your friend at the table with you. Envision your friend taking communion with you. That's a way to pray. That's a way to envision and hope for the things that are unseen as the author of Hebrews says. That's faith. Picture your friend sharing at the table of the Lord with you because that's, I truly believe, what Jesus wants. And that's, I truly believe, part of your calling is to invite that person to this meal and all that it represents, all that it means for us. We will keep singing. We have two more songs to sing together. Uh, If you would like to receive personal prayer, we'll have a member of the prayer team at the chairs here. Uh, Whatever your response is, you can make it uh, in strength and confidence, following and trusting Jesus. You don't have to be a member of our church or any, any of that nonsense. The table of the Lord is open. Come and receive the grace that's offered here. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.